Hello, welcome back. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Melanowski, walking through chapter two of Internal Family Systems Therapy, second edition by Richard Schwartz and Martha Sweezy. We're getting into individuals as systems. This is such an important chapter for those that are just getting familiar with internal family systems. The systems part's going to be explicated. It's going to be explained in much greater detail in this chapter. It's wonderfully written. I'm going to hit some of the high points just to bring home some of these critical concepts. So what is a system? A system can be defined as any entity whose parts relate to one another in a pattern. An entity whose parts relate to one another in a pattern. So that includes organic systems like human beings or cats, that it can also include mechanical systems like uh, televisions or cars, right? They have parts that work together, that coordinate and relate with one another in meaningful patterns. Cybernetic systems can regulate themselves by being sensitive to and changing according to feedback from the environment. So, so human beings are cybernetic systems because we can react to what's going on in the environment and we have the capacity for self-regulation. So a basic premise of IFS is that people have an innate drive toward and a wisdom about their own health. There's an internal teleology. There's a, a pull to healing, a pull towards health, a pull towards what's good. We strive toward creativity and intimacy. We don't just react to feedback. That's not the only thing that's driving us. We're not just trying to maintain homeostasis or steady states of being. We're drawn to creativity. We're drawn to intimacy. We're drawn to healing. We have a wisdom about our own health. IFS therapy is designed to help people release the constraints that get in the way of them finding that path to health that path to healing, that path to intimacy, that path to relational connection. To find the ways that those processes, those natural processes have been derailed and help reset and reestablish that positive course. So there's four key principles of human systems that Schwartz and Sweezy really get into. The first is balance. Human systems function best when they're balanced. And in a balanced system, so if we're thinking about like a family, right, a family system, it's where each person is allowed the degree of influence and access to the system's resources and responsibilities that's appropriate to that person's need and it's equal to other people in similar roles. So the needs of a father in a family system or the needs of a mother in a family system are gonna be different than the needs of the children. And there's gonna be different roles that they play, but those roles should have a balance. They should have an integrity about them. And so that family system is gonna function best when there is balance. Second major principle is harmony. So in harmonious systems, an effort's made to find a role that each member desires, that fits them, and that they like. So there's this desire to accommodate the members of the system, their particular temperaments, their relational styles, their emotional regulation. All of that gets sort of managed within the system, within the harmony of the system. And what's the opposite of harmony? Well, we think of it in IFS as polarization. 
And polarization is when a person shifts from a flexible, harmonious position to a rigid, extreme position that's the opposite or in competition with or sort of butting heads with another person in the system, right? So this is where you get uh, you know, fighting happening between a father and a daughter, for example, and both of them are dug into their positions, they're arguing, they're fighting, they're not seeing the other person's point of view, they're not operating in harmony. Third, so we have balance and harmony so far. The third one is leadership. That's really essential to maintain the balance and the harmony within a system. Effective leadership. And leaders in a system need to mediate polarizations and facilitate the flow of information within the system. They help to regulate the system, hear the input from all the members in the system, all the people in the system. But sometimes that Effective leadership is compromised for a variety of reasons. So systems need good leaders. Finally, development. It takes time to develop the skills and relationships necessary to implement that innate wisdom, that innate knowledge that systems have, that people have. And so, you know, there's a lot of raw talent in systems. The parts of infants are not born fully developed. There's a whole developmental process that they have to go through that needs to be fostered within the system for there to be an optimal developmental trajectory. So we really want there to be this focus on development so that the potential that exists within the system can be fully realized. So those are the four the four key principles of human systems, balance, harmony, leadership, and development. So let's start talking about bringing systems thinking into the intrapsychic world. And when I say intrapsychic, that means the, the psyche within me, within one person, right? That's where we're going to start thinking about symptoms. We're looking at individuals as psychic systems, internal family systems, brings family systems thinking inside the person. What are we looking for inside the person when we're wanting as clinicians to help clients along the road to health and healing? Well, we're looking for less rigidity and more flexibility. And what that means is that we don't have to deny one truth in favor of another. We want to expand the mind's capacity to hold multiple truths at one time and to navigate the complexity that that can often create. Now, a lot of clients, they can get in touch with their parts pretty readily. You know, sometimes there's cultural biases that kind of get in the way of that, but lots of times clients can actually get in touch with parts pretty quickly. The plural mind makes intuitive sense to many of the to, to many clients and I just find that to be true in my own clinical practice. We want to be able to understand what's going on inside of a person, whether that be ourselves or somebody that we're with, in terms of an ecology. A system has factors that interact just like, a natural ecology, right? Where the sunlight hits, where the water runs down, all of those have an impact on a local on a local environment or a microecology. It could even be what's going on in your backyard. Similarly, all of these parts within us have an impact on our entire system. So we want to be thinking about how these different 
parts impact us in terms of our overall systems. We can map those out, and a map of an inner system tells us about the jobs and relationships of the different parts, the different members of that system, and it also helps us to anticipate what might happen when we consider bringing some kind of change into the system. We don't want to just act blindly. We want to be thoughtful about it. We want to understand how systems, how different elements of systems, how different members of systems, how different parts in an internal system, how they interact so that we can anticipate behaviors and anticipate reactions. Finally, we want to talk about clear guidelines for change. We're looking at releasing constraints as clinicians. We're looking at making the most of the client's innate resources. That's what we want to do. And understanding that our behavior can be highly motivated by different parts helps us to understand how there can be such seemingly contradictory behaviors going on within one person. So how do we understand parts? I've been using that word parts. Let's, let's get into some definitions. Now, Dick and Martha, they give us a number of different synonyms for parts, including subpersonalities, subselves, internal characters, archetypes, complexes, internal objects, ego states, voices. These are different terms that have been used by different thinkers who have gotten into looking at multiplicity of the self uh, over the last 50 years, going all the way back to Jung. Now, the word part, okay, we acknowledge that it's not a perfect word. Uh, it's the one that, for various reasons, Dick and Martha have chosen to use in this book. I think it makes a lot of sense. It intuitively resonates with that. It's not something that you have to use, though. Not for thinking of yourself. And, and you don't have to use it with a client that doesn't resonate with that word either. Sometimes I've used different terms that are in here, like modes of operating. Sometimes people can really grip onto, at least initially, oh, I have this mode of operating, which really corresponds to a part that's activated and that is blended. So what are we talking about? We're talking about these parts, and parts are discrete, autonomous mental systems, each with their own idiosyncratic range of emotion, style of expression, abilities, desires, and views of the world. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that. Parts are like little internal persons. They're like little internal persons. We think about personalities, right? It's more than just an intense emotion, or it's more than just a particular intense desire or a particular behavior. They're, they are constellations of these internal experiences. And they are identifiable over time. They're not just there for a moment and then gone. They last over time. They, they exist over time. So they're not just a habitual thought pattern. They're not just a particular set of fixed beliefs and so forth. There is a whole range of experience that goes with a part, a whole range of emotion, a whole range of thoughts, beliefs, a worldview, all kinds of things. I argue also a spiritual view that goes with the different parts. There's all kinds of things that go into these parts like little internal people. Now what happens is that we are born with a whole tribe of these parts, a whole family, if you will, of these parts. And they have different interests, different talents, different temperaments. 
And what happens is that as we're growing up and we experience the inevitable attachment injuries, the relational wounds, maybe traumas, you know, capital T trauma, certainly we all have little t traumas. As we experience the parts get forced into extreme roles. So these are the parts within us that are forced into extreme roles because of having to cope with some external situation that otherwise would overwhelm us if parts didn't move to extreme roles to take care of us. So what we're doing in IFS therapy is releasing parts from those extreme roles. We're guiding the client self to be able to provide the parts in her system, what she needs, what those parts need in her system to be able to reestablish an organic, healthy trajectory toward what Maslow would call self-actualization, that kind of thing. Dick talks about parts being in three broad groups. Three broad groups. Managers, firefighters, and exiles. You're going to hear references to managers, exiles, and firefighters. Now, managers and firefighters are also known as protectors because they both protect the system from being overwhelmed. They both protect the system from harm, but they do it in very different ways. And so uh, that's why there's a distinction made between the managers and the firefighters, both of whom are protectors. So the managers are highly protective. They're strategic. They're interested in controlling the environment. They are very focused on keeping things safe. They are proactive. Those are the manager parts. We're going to get into these in greater depth in just a minute. Exiles are parts that are injured, that are outraged, that are experiencing intensity of emotion intensity of experience, they are banished by the managers because the managers are trying to protect both the exiles and promote the good of the whole system. Because if the exiles were to come up, blend with the self and take over, there would be really serious negative consequences. So the exiles carry the burdens of a lot of deep relational emotional pain. The managers are trying to keep the exiles from harming the system and from harm coming to the exiles, more harm coming to the exiles. Then finally, we have firefighters. These firefighters stifle, anesthetize, or distract from the feelings of exiles. They react powerfully and automatically when the exiles come up with their intensity, and they don't really care that much about the consequences. They're they're, they're, not, they're not focused on what the upshot of their actions are going to be because something needs to be addressed right now. Just like if your house is on fire, firefighter comes, pours water all over everything, is not going to be worried about the consequences of that water on your hardwood floors, right? It's sort of like that. That's why firefighter is such an apt description for them. So let's go through these again. Let's start with uh, exiles. So this is what happens when we have exiles. Children are taught by adults to fear and hide emotional pain. Why? Well, adults react to the kids who are in fear or who are in pain in the same extreme way they react to their own hurt child parts. What happens is 
A lot of times adults can't handle something inside themselves. It's just too intense. It's too much. And when they see that same thing happening in somebody else, they try to shut it down. If they see that happening in a child, they'll try to shut it down in the child. So the child learns to fear and hide emotional pain and exiles are the parts that have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in external relationships. They are the ones that have been negatively judged. They're the ones that have borne the brunt of some kind of ill treatment and it doesn't have to be intentional from the parents or from you know other adults, but they've borne that in the system. They've taken that on in order to protect the rest of the system from the consequences of those injuries and wounds. So the exiles get frozen in the past. They get left behind. And so they are less vulnerable to alarming events in the present. So that actually kind of makes sense that managers try to suppress them, try to keep them uh, locked away, try to keep them from coming forward with the intensity of their experience during the normal events of day-to-day life. But exiles want care and love. They want to be rescued. They want to be redeemed. They're looking for somebody to try to connect to. Often a person that resembles in some way the uh person who originally wounded them. Okay, so they're carrying the intensity of the negative experiences, the exiles. Managers. All right, so managers, they've locked up the exiles. They are tasked with keeping the system safe enough, keeping the boat floating and and sailing so that we can just function in the everyday, day-to-day demands that we face. Now, We talked about how exiles are forced into their roles. So are managers. Managers, they believe that they've got to do what they're doing, but they don't enjoy it. Managers don't like suppressing exiles, but they don't see another answer. They don't see another path in order to keep the system safe. There are many kinds of managers. You know, sometimes they're highly intellectual and they're effective at problem solving. Others are really effective at pushing feelings away. They function in all different kinds of ways that that Dick describes in the chapter. They can be identified by the thinker, the controller, things like that. Some strive for career success or wealth in order to try to get into a position where there's enough safety, security. Managers can deny things. Managers can avoid interpersonal risk, you know, by 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 really withdrawing from important social situations. Managers can use pessimism as a way to reduce expectations to avoid the, the pain of being the, avoid the pain of being disappointed. Managers can be really critical in order to try to drive the person to greater efficiency and effectiveness in the work that they do. There's all kinds of ways that managers can govern when they are in control, try to govern the system. The critical thing is that managers are really not equipped to lead the system. They are attempting to take over the role of the self in leading and guiding the system, but they really can't do it. They really don't have the resources to do that effectively or to do that well. So the issue is that they don't see who else is going to do it. If the self is locked away, if the self has been uh, occluded by other parts, managers step into that void. And one thing to appreciate about managers is that they are trying They are trying to step into shoes that are way too big for them. Managers can even come to believe that they alone are responsible for a person's success and safety. And, you know, so they can hesitate 
to step aside and let the self emerge and take over leadership of the of the person system. Firefighters. Let's talk about firefighters. All right. So when will we expect to see a firefighter? Well, we'll expect to see a firefighter when the manager's attempts to suppress exiles, to keep exiles at bay, fail. And exiles are coming up. When the intensity of the burdens that exiles have is coming up, that intense emotion, the rage, the pain, the sadness, the despair, whatever it is, whatever the intense, whatever the intense experience of the exiles is, it could be recollections of horrible trauma, whatever it is, when, it, when that's coming up, it's got to be dealt with. And that's when you're going to see firefighters leap into action. Right? Traditional therapy sees firefighter behaviors as pathological. That's where you get into, that's where you can get into things that seem really harmful, that can, that can really start uh, leading therapists to become really anxious, to start being really frightened about what's going on. So, you know, you can see binge eating, self-mutilation, drug and alcohol abuse, dissociation, sexual risk-taking, all gambling, you know, you can see gambling binges, uh, intense shopping behaviors, all in the service of trying to distract and move the attention away from the, the experience of the exiles. So firefighters, they can lead a person to be really self-absorbed. It can be can lead a person to be extremely demanding, to be driven to grab onto material things, all kinds of things, you know, you know, include raging, you know, as a way of distracting from something even more threatening. You can get into shoplifting, stealing. There's all kinds of extreme behaviors that, that firefighters are engaging in. But remember, it's again, not gratuitous. It's because they're desperately trying to, to restabilize a system that seems like it's spinning out of control. And so their behavior makes sense if you understand what's motivating it. Right? So firefighters react to exiles surfacing. And firefighters are looking for something that will calm and appease the exiles and settle the whole system down. So that's why sometimes when you look at what the effect is of firefighter behaviors in a client, it has this effect of settling things down. At least it seems so on the surface. Parts really, really want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be redeemed, right? So that's why the burden of shame, the burden of feeling worthless can be so, so painful, Children are very sensitive to messages from their parents regarding their value. Children are really sensitive to messages from their parents regarding their value. When parents are pretty consistent in being reassuring and valuing the child in all the child's parts, there's a calming of that hypersensitivity that kids have regarding their own worth. They're really looking to the parents to, to help them understand that, to help them experience that. We don't have to experience capital T trauma, something really terrible, you know, that everybody would recognize as really traumatic in order to pick up burdens. That, you know, the child can feel unloved in, in moments where the parent's just not really attuned, not really connected, not really being led by their, by their own self in that moment. 
So what manager parts are often doing, especially critical manager parts, the internal critics, they're trying to make the child more and more acceptable to parents in order to be able to get the love that the child desperately needs. All right, so what is the self? Well, we're going to talk a lot about this in the next chapter, in chapter three, but there's this just brief introduction to it right now. The self is the seed of consciousness. It's at the core of the human being. And the self has all the necessary qualities of good leadership, and that includes perspective, it includes compassion, curiosity, acceptance, confidence. There's so many great qualities that are innate to the self. That's something that IFS is very firm on, that these qualities are innate to the self, that the self doesn't develop them, that they are always there, and that they if we can if we can actually free the self from being occluded or blended with by the parts we can we can bring those those great qualities into the system so that they can be so that they can be used right when we are in a self-led state we have this sense of continuity we have the sense of integration we have the sense that there is this leadership in the system and that promotes all of the other aspects that we need in well-ordered systems, the balance, the development, all of those things. All right, so we'll just review some key assumptions that IFS holds, and these come in uh, starting on page 39 in the book, that we are naturally multiple and unitary in our psyches, right? That the human mind has somewhere usually between 10 and 30 parts. That's pretty common to find 10 to 30 parts within a person's system if you've been doing some, some, some mapping of, that, of, the, of the person's internal ecology. You'd be finding usually 10 to 30. That this multiplicity is not pathological. Sometimes you know we get this idea of multiple personality disorder. Now we call it dissociative identity disorder. That somehow that's a a, a a radically different way for a human psyche to be organized. And really, no, that's the the problem that comes in when with people that have actually gotten that diagnosis. And remember that IFS is not all about those kinds of di- diagnoses. Not about that really at all. But it's just that the parts are so disconnected from one another that sometimes they don't even know that one another exists, right? So that's what happens in that extreme case, but that it's normal for us to have parts. And the problem comes in not in having parts, but when a system is not self-led and there starts to be these polarizations, this infighting, this lack of harmony, this this, uh, tension within the person that takes up, sucks up so much energy and so many resources for that for that person, so much is lost in there because there is this uh, competition among parts, all of whom, all of whom have good intentions for the person, but have very different ideas about what's needed in order to bring those good intentions about. So the more highly polarized an inner ecology is, the more highly polarized someone's internal system is, the more infighting that there is among the parts, the more rigid and delicate the ecology of that person's system is going to be. There's going to be less space for you know movement. There's going to be more fragility, more potential for the whole system to be turned topsy-turvy by some kind of internal or external event that could be destabilizing. 
We look at resistance as a way to protect, we respect what's going on behind what's often called resistance. We look for balance, harmony, and leadership in the system. We foster that through supporting the client's self, helping that self to emerge and take on that role with its innate characteristics that uniquely suit it to be able to guide the person's system. We don't try to take on that role as therapists. We don't try to take on the role of organizing the person's system unless the person's self is just so unavailable that we decide to do that, that we choose to do that thoughtfully uh, in the short run until that person's self can come to the fore. So we look at that inner system that intrapsychic system, that internal system of the person as being connected also with the person's external systems, with their families, with their spiritual communities, with their localities, right? The, the municipalities in which they live within their cultures. We see the nesting of those systems. And because system levels echo each other, A therapist doesn't start working on a client's internal system without thoroughly thinking about and getting an understanding of what's going on in the external context. Remember, all these things are interconnected. We want to be thoughtful, not just about the internal ecology of the person, the internal system, but how that internal system is responding to the broader external systems that that person lives in. So that's a wrap for chapter two. I look forward to seeing you on the other side with chapter three when we get into the self.